The Revolutionary War was a fraud. The United States did not actually declare independence from Great Britain or the King. America is technically a British colony. The older approach to controlling people is to literally control them and physically imprison them in time and space. And I think as humans and societies and power structures have evolved, they've gotten more and more clever with it. So now they don't physically enslave you in time and space generally. They right. maybe enslave your, your mind. As long as I control the money, I care not who makes the country's laws. The WEF wants to be the next Rockefeller and Rothschilds, right? Klaus Schwab, he's going with a more vocal, <laughs> obvious approach and agenda. Hello and welcome back to The Rabbit Hole, episode number five, I believe we're on. Um, we hope that you are deeply offended and triggered by the title of this episode. <laughs> That's obviously why you clicked on the video, right? Um, no, actually, this is a title of a document that we're going to be reading through with you today. It's called, I think, 40 Important Facts Every U.S. Slave Should Know. And uh, I found this document a few weeks ago and went through it and was really impressed because it's talking about a lot of really important facts that we should know about the history of the United States corporation slash uh, country we live in, at least most of us watching live in. And these facts are corroborated with tons of references, which I really appreciated about this document. So I'm going to leave the link to this PDF in the description below. You guys can follow along with us. This document is 40 facts. We're just going to go through 20 of them. A lot of these we condensed into, you know, one point because they're talking about the same subjects. But uh, we're going to be doing 20 out of these here today. And if you want to do your own research, which we always recommend, you have a ton of resources on this document to fact check what we're going to be talking about today. And a lot of what we're going to be going through today is things we've already talked about in this series, but we're going to go a little deeper into them and look at some of the historical facts and documents that um, corroborate these understandings. So um, I guess we'll just go ahead and jump in and I'll, I'll also, you know, talk about the elephant in the room, which is that I had to up my quality game to keep up with Jeremy. So now we're both rocking with 4K cameras and actual microphones. So hopefully you appreciate the uh, increase in quality today as well. Beautiful. Yeah, we're trying to uh, put out some some real solid master classes for you guys so we know that uh not everyone can sit and focus for two hours straight so we're trying to make it as entertaining and uh, enjoyable on the eyes and ears as possible <laughs> mm -hmm. so let's get into the first fact so it says the revolutionary war was a fraud the united states did not actually declare independence from great britain or the king america is technically a british colony the United States is a corporation, not a landmass. We've definitely talked about that. But this says that it existed before the Revolutionary War. And then it gives you the, the reference there. And then finally, the British troops didn't even leave America until 1796, well after most of our founding documents were created and ratified, right? Uh, the King of England financed both sides of the Revolutionary War. So a lot of history here, but talking about America's 
sort of the illusion of independence from Great Britain that America claims that it has actually isn't quite what our history books have told us in that, and I've heard this before, Jeremy, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. The King of England funded both sides of the war, which big power structures in the world almost always do this, right? Usually it's the banks. Sometimes it's countries or nation states. There was a good example of this recently with the Disney World story in Florida. I don't know if you saw this story, Jeremy, but basically Ron DeSantis tried to take away Disney World's rights of self-governance since they're pushing all the child grooming stuff lately. And Disney World came back and was like, uh-uh-uh, not so fast. We only answer to the crown. And this is just almost hilarious if you know what's going on because they would never, ever admit this unless they were forced to in a situation like this. But they basically admitted, like, you don't have jurisdiction over us because we're owned by Britain. <laughs> so for those of you who are, like, confused by this, apparently the land that Disney World is on is owned by the crown. And so since, like, 1960, Disney World has basically been a tax-free sovereign district, you know, exempt from taxes and anything to do with federal statutes. And they basically claim to just be like an apolitical charity. You know, Disney does a lot of charity work so that they can be tax exempt. Then they started pushing all this woke stuff. And so Ron DeSantis was like, all right, guys, you want to get involved in politics? Then let's do politics. We're going to take away your tax exempt status in Florida. But then Disney World came back and pulled out this clause from the British Bill of Rights, which is a royal clause that dates back to like 1692. And it says that essentially Britain has sovereignty over any territory of the crown until the last descendant of King Charles III has passed. And that's the clause Disney World used to keep their tax-exempt status in Florida. And if you know anything about history, then you know that this clause comes from the Magna Carta, which is like the English Bill of Rights. So most people reading this article are probably like, wait, how is Disney avoiding federal tax codes by using an English Bill of Rights clause? But that's because Disney World is technically a territory of the crown, just like Washington, D.C., actually. Most of you know that Washington, D.C. is not actually a state, but a territory, a.k.a. a British colony. So, you know, do with that what you will. But uh, this is important for us to know that actually what we tried to escape in England, that whole system of um, sort of the feudal system of law that they were enslaving everyone under, America tried was an attempt to escape that and create a truly free country. And so what a lot of, you know, alternative independent historians say is that England could have easily stopped this from happening, but they essentially were like, well, let's just give them the illusion of what they want. And technically we'll still control them and we'll still create the same law structure in that country as we have here. And we'll just call it Admiralty Maritime Law, but it's all the same rule set, right? So Mm -hmm. um, curious to hear your thoughts about that, Jeremy. Yeah, I think uh, I think we got damn close, but ultimately it kind of reminds me of the situation when they finally um, repealed slavery in the states, right? Right. It's like yeah. it was it granted some of us the illusion of freedom, but it just got swapped out for the Fourteenth Amendment. So slavery was no longer like chains on your wrists. Mm-hmm. It became a birth certificate, it became a social, it became um, paying income taxes, which didn't exist before, became some of these aspects. I think this is very much so a similar situation. 
the older approach to controlling people is to literally control them and physically imprison them in time and space. And I think as humans and societies and power structures have evolved, they've gotten more and more clever with it. So now they don't physically enslave you in time and space generally. They maybe enslave your, maybe your mind. They enslave the data and knowledge that you have access to. No matter how much you seem to make and the pay raises you get year in, year out, it never seems to accumulate and make much of a difference in your life financially. Um, Seems like for every dollar you save, you check on it a little bit later and now it's 50 cents. Where did it go? So I think they just have become a lot more strategic and intelligent, calculated in the ways that they that they go about these things. And the U.S. uh, declaring its kind of independence was really no different. Those who have large, vast amounts of money tend to remain in positions of leverage as far as like power dynamics and negotiations go. And really all it took was waiting for an opportunity where the United States was in a vulnerable position without leverage on the verge of bankruptcy. And the rest is kind of history. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Literally it is though. (laughs) Didn't mean to say that, but. (laughs) I think probably Jeremy, the way that they did it most notably is through creating the federal reserve, all the same, you know, elite banking families from England came to establish the banking system of this country. And sort of like that famous quote from one of the Rothschilds, like Benjamin Rothschild or whoever it was that was alive back then said, as long as I control the money, I care not who makes the country's laws. Cause money is what really makes the country go round. And so that's what England did. They established the same central banking system that they had in England here in the States. And they just called it something federal sounding. And yeah. that was, they knew that's all we need to do and actually to control the country. And so speaking of what you brought up, Jeremy, I'm, I'm curious if you've heard the term usury before. I have. Yeah. yeah. I'm not too, not too versed on it. Usury is the official term for enslaving someone through debt. So loaning someone money with a really high interest rate that they'll never be able to pay back. And eventually they're just sort of your slave through debt. Mm -hmm. So we call it a debt slave. That's kind Um, of uh, more of a common law term, right? I think so. Yeah. But it's, it's in the the dictionary, the Britannica dictionary. And we're going to get to usury actually later on in these uh, 20 facts. So are you good on that first one or anything else you wanted to add? Uh, No, I'm good on that one. Okay. So. The next uh, fact we have says that the gold fringe around the the U.S. flag we always see, if you watch any congressional meeting, you know, the House, Senate, they always have the American flag up at the top and they're covered in that gold fringe. It says the gold fringe symbolic of royalty, which is attached to the border of every U.S. flag hanging in every courtroom across America, symbolizes America being ruled to this day by Great Britain under international maritime admiralty law. And so that I know to be based on my own research to definitely be true. Uh, I've heard it a little bit differently as well, Jeremy, that the the gold fringe is also a pirate sign of capturing another vessel in that in the days of pirates, if they would capture another ship from another country, which the pirates went around doing that, taking all their goods that they're trading and stuff, 
Then they would take the flag of the ship they captured, raise it up the staff and sew their gold fringe around it to show like, look, mm. we captured Sweden, we captured France. Uh, and so the gold fringe is a symbol of you are owned by someone or something else. You've been captured. And so this is saying that Great Britain is the pirate that captured our ship, so to speak, and is symbolizing that with that gold fringe. Yeah, as far as the flags go, that's a that's a very interesting rabbit hole to go down. Like dollar bills, flags, th these themes of unconscious symbols, because that's ultimately what they are, right? And that's kind of how yep. they do things, like truth in plain sight type thing mm -hmm. seems to be one of the rules that they conduct themselves under. Um, as far as like specific to flags, I don't know too much on that, so I won't speak on that, but I have seen some very interesting stuff in the realm of kind of what you're saying. I'll just say that I don't think that the uh, stuff on our flags means what we think. <laughs> like, for example, I've for seen sure. stuff about the stripes on it. Yeah. The stars, we're told it means one thing. I believe it may mean something else. And that's very true of like our currency and stuff like that. But people right. just don't question things because we're... We're so busy, right? So busy. Yep. Got to pay those bills. Got to get there. <laughs> Got to get there. Most people aren't aware of this fact too, Jeremy, that the red, white, and blue horizontal stripes we, we normally see as the American flag is actually America's wartime flag. Mm -hmm. And there, there is a peacetime flag, which is um, the colors are inverted. I believe it's, we'll put it up on the screen for you guys to see now. This is the peacetime flag that America originally flew for, I think it's like the first 11 years or something since it was established and then got into a war right away. And it's been the war flag ever since. Mm -hmm. And we know that wartime is a convenient way to control your population, kind of like emergency, emergency orders. You know, now we have this valid excuse to break the rules and to violate your rights because it's, it's wartime or it's emergency time. So one of the strategies of the, power structure of the government is to always keep an emergency or a war going so that they can basically trample all over their citizens' rights. That's very important <laughs> to note. Yeah, if, if uh, any of you have ever noticed, it seems that we, right when we finally stop involving ourselves in one war, within a month or two, the media is covering this new threat, whatever it may be. It's because peace and prosperity isn't profitable. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's true. really it, guys. Um, it's just like things that grow from the ground aren't profitable, and that's why we have the whole health crisis. Health is not profitable. Have. Same type of thing. Peace, prosperity, and order, it's not profitable. You being in fear is profitable. As we talked about in some of our past episodes where we broke down um, the systems in every which way. Mm -hmm. These systems aren't flawed. They're actually structured very intelligently to incentivize this stuff never changing. Yeah. Because as long as wars are profitable and we live in a profit-driven society, there is an incentive there to go to war. So I think it's mm -hmm. like naive for us to just be like, world peace and come together. And it's like, well... If the very like frameworks of the systems reward for a select few things, our best chance at modifying the behavior would be to change the incentives. Right. Great point. Um, but that's not a conversation I ever hear. So that's my two cents on the 
conversation. Yeah, that, that's not something that, that the governments and the banks are going to do. Mm-hmm. It's something we got to do. We got to make them do it essentially by standing together. When we talk, we're going to talk a lot more about this in a few more facts down from here, but I think a really great way to understand how the banks act in the world, how central bank, the central banking system acts. We know they fund both sides of every war because war is like the biggest profit machine that they have. So they're always trying to instigate wars and profit from them. And so we know that uh, the things that typically start wars, like for example, uh, seeing a Chinese spy balloon floating over your nuclear site and not shooting it down. And then the whole country gets upset. How dare China do that? It's like, it's, it's all theater. They're trying to stoke the, fu- the flames of war so that our country wants to go to war and we're, or we at least approve of it or we don't you know, resist it too much. And the big banks are just like dog fighters that are, you know, that you put two dogs in a pen and you agitate them and poke them and then they fight each other. That's, what, that's how banks treat countries. They'll, they'll start shit between different nation states, right? And try to get them agitated at each other by paying off both sides to do this or that. And before you know it, there's a war and then they're funding both sides of the war and making money off it, just like dog fighters make money off of their dogs fighting one another. To me, that's a, a kind of a good way to understand how the banking system really works. It's, it's purely for profit, like Jeremy said. So they're gonna wanna start as much war as possible, create as much conflict as possible, and they do that because they have infinite wealth at their disposal to do that. So I think, you know, when we understand the way the game is played at the top level, we can finally, with that awareness, start making positive changes in the opposite direction. And it's like when you see that we've always been at war since the beginning of our country's inception, and we've always been under an emergency, I think it's what, Jeremy, like 32 emergency acts that are still currently active. Something I don't know like the that. exact number, but it's up there. It's a lot of emergencies. What are the odds, Jeremy? What do you think the odds are in 200 plus years of a country's history that they would never experience a moment without an emergency and a war? Sounds intentional to me. (laughs) Probably not very statistically probable. So what does that tell you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And while we're on this conversation of uh, incentives that I kind of brought up, uh, another good example outside of war is if we understand the first principles that I laid out regarding like if you want behavior to actually change, it has to be incentivized. First, let me give an example before I make my point. So this is just like how if you study like power dynamics or how to influence or control people, this is just like 101. So incentives need to align with the desired behavior. So how many of you have ever asked yourself, why do I get um, tax write-offs for starting a business or for having a kid or for buying a house. Good question. Or why is my credit score higher when I'm in debt and have more lines of debt open? But as soon as I pay off the debt, my credit score actually goes down. I literally just talked about that the other day with some people. Yeah. You, this is a question of incentives. Yeah. They're behave. They're showing you the desired behavior they want you to have. They yeah. want you to buy a house because that's in debt. debt. And then, you know, as far as your FICO, you know, you pay off your student loans. You think, yay, my credit score is going to spike or you pay off your car. No, it's going to go down. Uh, they want you in debt. So this is a conversation of incentives. And another massive one is we know that inflation is the number one kind of stealer of wealth over time. 
and it's pretty sinister because like how many people are very versed in like macroeconomics Aaron? like your average person knows the word inflation mm-hmm. uses the word inflation but really just because everyone talks about it and the media keeps saying it but they don't really understand they don't have a historical yeah uh, reference we're never they're taught a, they're not aware that in 1913 a dollar is now worth 32 and we, so we've seen uh, 32 times over loss in our buying power since the creation of the Fed. So you have to ask yourself, when, in what economic climates do banks prosper the most? Well, what does a bank do? A bank loans money largely, right? We have a system called fractional reserve banking. So for every dollar you put in, they can loan 10 to 1. And so they'll pay you 0.025% a year on your dollar and they'll loan out that $10 and make 10, 12% upwards sometimes. And they don't even hold to that rule, right? Correct. And that's just how that works. Rinse, repeat. It's a game of leverage. Yeah. So the way that the banks work is the central bank is at the top. So we got the IMF, then it comes down to the Fed, then it goes down to the big banks, then it goes down to the regional banks and local banks. The Fed and the IMF are what set the uh, Fed funds rate and what set the federal interest rate. And that interest rate is what the banks are allowed to charge for their loans. I want you to think mortgages, car, auto loans, all those things are constantly fluctuating, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, there's fixed credit lines, but a lot of them are variable. What's referred to as variable that fluctuate with the economy. In what condition are banks going to make more revenue, Aaron, and more profit when the Fed has the money printer on and interest rates are 0% or when we're in an inflationary climate and interest rates are 6%. They love those interest rates. Correct. So once again, we have a conflict of interest again, where people talk about, you know, how are we going to fix inflation? How are we going to fight inflation? But who really runs the world? Bankers. Yeah. Largely banking families, at least cartels, however you want to refer to them. And they benefit just as much from inflationary climates as they do from war. So I just wanted to give different examples because I think it's an important ability to be able to understand that uh, incentives drive behavior. And I don't think, I just think we're being extremely naive if we don't talk about incentive structures in place and have conversations around those rather than like fighting the system or whatever. Yeah. Those are the details people really need to become aware of if they want to be able to make positive change truly. Cause yeah, we can protest all we want, but until we start making actual functional changes in our systems, it's just going to be the same hamster wheel. Facts. So uh, let's go to four now, which says that if you are of legal age and retain legal counsel in your defense, you are automatically assumed by the court to be mentally incompetent um, and can therefore be remanded indefinitely to any mental institution of the court's choosing. Uh, I'm going to stop there and say I have researched this to be true as well in that uh, a lot of times you'll see if you, if you actually know your rights, if you, if you stand on your identity as a common law, you know, living man or woman, and you speak from that place, they'll, they'll tell, tell you, you need to get a psyche valve and they'll assign you a psychiatrist to evaluate your mental health. So they're trying to make you look crazy. If you're talking about real law 
and you're not operating in their maritime law system. And that's because, yeah, the, the, the judge can basically deem you to be mentally incompetent. Even if you don't have legal counsel, they can try to do that. But according to the Bar Association, yeah, an attorney is one who uh, is speaking on behalf of someone else who's not responsible enough or competent enough to represent themselves. Like, I don't know my rights. I don't know what I'm in entitled to. So I need someone else to know it for me. So the court looks at you like you're not uh, even competent enough to be in this courtroom type of thing. And so you're already at a disadvantage when you have an attorney in the legal system. But of course, that's the way they've set it up on purpose, right? To make it seem like uh, no person could possibly defend themselves in court. You got to hire someone to do that. And looky there, another kind of way they condition us to outsource our power. Mm. Yeah, and this is uh, this is another conflict of interest where a lot of us feel it's a good idea to hire an attorney or a lawyer to represent us. But in the very act of doing that, we are essentially acquiescing or signing an implied contract that says we are the straw man and we are dead yeah. because attorneys can only represent your person. Fiction. dead entity and if you go into court as your person that's when you're not going to be happy with the outcome mm -hmm. because dead entities don't have rights as i always <laughs> say yep. it's in most people's best interest to do what they can to remain out of court and um, mm -hmm. realize that most of it is shenanigans there are ways to avoid being served and they have to go through you know uh, due process and properly serve you and that means that you have to be identifying yourself and verbally contract with them. And then if it, you know, if it is an absolute requirement, um, it's usually in someone's best interest to not be represented by a lawyer or an attorney. The same way we're talking about where, who owns the United States, these same families are attached to the bar. I'll just put it that way. I've also heard them say that if you show up with an attorney, the judge will assign a trust. I think it's called an implied trust. If you don't come in with a trust saying, this is who I am, the judge will assign a trust on the spot where judge acts as the grantor executor. You're the trustee and the prosecutor is the beneficiary in that trust. So it's set up like, hey, you've been a bad trustee and you've mismanaged the assets. How? By violating the, the statutes, codes, and, and contracts, right? So now they look at you like, uh, everyone in here is a bar member, the judge, the, the bailiff, the attorneys, they're all bar members, and you're not a bar member. So it's like, what are you doing in our courtroom? You don't belong here kind of thing. So there's different ways psychologically and philosophically that they automatically see you as guilty from the time you step into the court. So the next part of this says you, can, you cannot use the U.S. Constitution to defend yourself because you are not a party to it. And then it says, the people does not include you and me. And what I know mm. about this one, Jeremy, is that um, I've seen court cases. I've watched court cases where the judge says that to somebody who tries to quote the Constitution. They say, don't you quote that Constitution in my courtroom again? And you're like, what? But that's because these aren't constitutional or common law courts. They are admiralty maritime courts, uh, corporate courts, if you, if you like. And so, yeah, the way they look at you, we, the people applies only to 
like American state nationals, the original status that began in this country. And then we know that the United States created their own citizenship called U.S. citizen. And that's not we the people. So if you're a citizen, if you're a person, a resident, you're not included in the we the people of the Constitution. So the judge is also looking at you like, hey, why are you quoting rights from a book that don't apply to you? That's a, that's a dishonorable thing to do, right? So the judges will literally tell people not to quote the Constitution in their court. Mm. This is a very interesting one. Because on the one side, so we have the policy enforcers and such, they pledge an oath to the Constitution, supposedly, right? Right. So that's what they're supposedly pledging an oath to uphold. And then the oath that they're pledging to uphold directly relates to their interaction largely with the people that it outlines governance for. Unfortunately, the 14th Amendment <laughs> turned people into property. So mm-hmm. this is a loaded one. But yeah, I think I think you nailed it in regards to the courts are um, commercial businesses and yeah. for profit. When you step in there, you're not <laughs> you're not going to have a fun time trying to be a, a people instead of a person. Uh, they're not really interested in that. So that's why usually those that actually know what they're doing live in the private, et cetera. That's why most lawful advice on how to operate in court, they'll usually tell you like, don't ever answer a question. Always respond to a question with a question. Um, show up on special appearance, express your trust right away. So you're kind of out of the jurisdiction. There's all these different ways you can operate in their system without being held captive by it but you got to study up and you got to know your stuff because their system is designed to trick you and deceive you into claiming that you're a person, the birth certificate, all caps name and so forth. So yeah, if you don't know your stuff, avoid court at all costs, but there is a way we can go into courts empowered and knowing how to stand up for our rights. Uh, moving on to the next uh, stat here. I know you're going to love this one, Jeremy, because you have some good videos on this topic. Number five here says you own no property. Read the deed to the property that you think is yours. You are listed as a tenant. Legally, the term human being refers to an animal impersonating a human, such as a slave. Under the law, slaves can't own property. We are slaves and own absolutely nothing. Not even what we think are our children. Read your birth certificate. Your mother is listed as an informant. (laughs) Trigger warning. (laughs) Trigger warning hard on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think those are two of the biggest uh, tricks up the sleeve that they've pulled off uh, brilliantly is uh, yes. the illusion of ownership, as I refer to it. I mean, really, they're both the illusion of ownership, right? Um, we think that our children are ours, but they're they're not. Um, Signed them over. And then the, I guess the birth certificate conversation would be the illusion of life when in reality... A birth certificate is a death certificate, (laughs) but that's a different conversation. And I see we have, uh, there's a good amount of case law right there. Yeah. So that's interesting. It's a good amount of case law regarding um, the whole birth certificate thing, which I think is still, for some reason, um, controversial. People feel like it's too, I think people think like there's no way that this could be true because like it would have been revealed by now. You know what I Uh mean? Like Only because every everyone has a birth certificate, but you guys can look into that. I mean, that's pretty to me, that's pretty low hanging fruit. But so what I'll say on the property one, 
Yeah, I have a few really good. So I've done a, an audio podcast on this that you guys can check out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I didn't do a video on it called The Illusion of Ownership. I kind of talk about how the middle class wear ownership as a badge of honor. And yep. um, it kind of uh, it kind of saddens me because, number one, you can't own anything. Um, and number two, the wealthy are kind of like laughing at that. They want nothing to do with owning anything. And so if the wealthy, if the 1%, right, if they, the ones that are supposedly oppressing you, if they're living by a completely different set of rules, like 180 degrees different from you, it might be worth zooming out and asking yourself the question, what do they know that I don't? Why aren't they acting in this way that I've been taught is in my best interests? Well, it's because they understand that you can't actually own anything and all that comes with ownership is liability. You don't even get the benefits. So you don't even get the perks you think you're getting from ownership. Like the illusion of safety is really what you're buying. You're buying the illusion of safety. That's why people want to own things. There's a little status in it, but like with something like a house, generally, mm -hmm. it's like you're buying the illusion of safety. Like this is mine, mm -hmm. but it's not yours. And as I say in the video, because I already knew I was going to get comments like, this doesn't apply to me because I paid off my house. It is mine. Yep, and I'm yep. like, so what I outline is like, well, then just don't pay your property taxes. Yeah, and see you'll what find out real quick whose that actually is. It's yeah. the banks. It's the U.S. corporation. But it's not yours. No. If it were yours and you owned it free and clear, like you owned the land, like mm -hmm. from the center of the earth all the way up to the sky, like you're talking about more like loyal land patents and such, um, then you wouldn't owe any property taxes and you wouldn't have to pay for different services or and you obviously wouldn't be paying a mortgage or a deed or anything like that so mm -hmm. those are some basics on the conversation of ownership and why the wealthy are all about control which has everything to do with being in a position of trustee or sometimes beneficiary where you're controlling things but has nothing to do with your name it's more of a confidential type agreement where you get the benefits but none of the liability so ownership all of the liability few of the benefits control all of the benefits none of the liability and that's baked into the contracts mm -hmm. uh, but we weren't taught to read contracts so we don't know that no did you see trump's tax returns jeremy no i didn't actually look into them I didn't, I didn't read them myself, but from what, uh, what I heard from other people who looked into them, it was essentially that he doesn't pay taxes because he doesn't own anything. He's got nothing to pay taxes on, yep. uh, which is how they all do it. And that's why we don't, they don't want wealthy people who play the game that way to have their taxes be released. Cause it's like, Oh, we're going to let the secret out of how these wealthy people don't ever pay taxes. Yeah, they don't yeah. own anything. Yeah, I viewed that whole situation where like, what, wasn't it like a, a full like 18 months or 24 months that it took them to like, from the time he ran to the time that that was like released? I mean, I think it was just released a few weeks ago, dude. Okay, so yeah, so years, like years, right? And then I viewed that as like, Trump was willing to call the systems bluff because he knows how it works. So yep. there would be situations where the media or um, his uh, run, what, what do you even call the person, <laughs> the person running against him, um, <laughs> whatever you want to call that 
Um, yeah, but it's like fake, so I didn't know what to call it. But um, there would be situations where like they would try to put him on the spot because he would um, bother them so much and they didn't want him to win so much that they would kind of reach for that low-hanging fruit. And in my opinion, his response is kind of like, I dare you to like look into that. Like, you mm. know what you're doing and you know that this will be a losing proposition, if anything, like because he knows how to play the game. But all that's going to do is it's going to show millions of people how the game is played. And that's a bigger threat to them than like the potential threat that they're trying to make of him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean. I, I use Trump a lot as an example, not because I vote or anything like that, more so because as a businessman, um, he knows what he's doing. Like I usually explain, he, uh, I believe he's been bankrupt seven times and uh, actually grows his wealth uh, yep. via that. So that's where yep, that's another trick. How is that possible? And then, um, yeah, the tax piece. And like, I think he was involved in the Panama Papers as well. So it's like, yeah, the stuff's out there. And um, mm-hmm. as I, as I'm always talking about in regards to my brand, like you can either get mad at uh, the system and how the game is played, or you can learn the rules because mm-hmm. um, the game isn't going to change because it's right. predicated on human nature, which is a lot of what we talked about before. So, yeah, like I said before, if, if they're playing ch- chess against us and we just keep playing checkers, we're just going to keep losing. So we might as well learn how to play chess. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. And from this perspective of ownership, it's simple, right? Like how can you own anything if you're a legal fiction? And the system only sees you as a legal fiction, right? So whatever you think you own, a fiction can't actually own anything. So really they own it and they're just letting you be the trustee that's managing the asset, whether it's a home, a car, doesn't matter, any loan. And then if you miss a payment, if you, you know, whatever, you're going to get thrown into court and they're going to say, you've been a bad trustee. And meanwhile, you're like, I'm the owner. What do you mean? It's my stuff. So they they want to keep you in that ignorance under that veil of ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Basically everything like the deeper you go into trust law, like life is trust law. Like life in the 3D is like everything is about trust. And we didn't really get into that because I don't want to. Like go over We're going to get into heads, trust probably in our next some one. of that. Okay. But yeah, like basically what Aaron's saying, like whether you're aware of it or not, like it's just being done for you, but everything is about trust. So you're yeah. thinking you own something as your person in your name as a human being, but really all that's happening is like, you're still a dead entity. That dead entity is a corporation, which has an EIN called a social And then you're just being assigned now instead of being able to choose and having any sort of like control, you're just being assigned what position of that trust you now are. And sometimes you're just being assigned the, the even trust that we're talking about. um, And you're not having any control or awareness over that. So then when it comes time to be like, this is totally wrong. Like, how are they able to do this? It's like, Well, because the situation that you think is occurring is completely different from the situation that's contractually occurring. Right. Like that's probably the easiest way to put it. Like all that the United States and that the really the the new world cares about is contracts. Mm -hmm. It's not what you think. It's what you can contractually prove. And that's how all of this operates. So it's like contracts contract law trust law it's it's really worth studying 
Yeah, we're going to go into that probably in our next episode. We're going to do one on the three jurisdictions of law, land, air, water, which is uh, trust is air, which is the highest jurisdiction of law. And that's why they use trust law so much because it's the most powerful form of law. And then under that, you have common law, the land, the law of the land. And then below that, you have Admiralty Maritime Law, which is water, which is what we've been talking a lot about is the legal system. And technically, that system sort of becomes the strongest when you get someone into a contract. So it's kind of a wild card. But again, we're going to go really deep into that in our next episode. So uh, let's go to number six. It says military dictator George Washington divided the states, estates into districts based upon the ritualistic practice of dissecting Masonic squares. This is why even today, so many towns are built on the square. America is truly the land of the free, Freemasons that is. <laughs> In addition to obsession with Masonic ritual, symbols and architecture, the United States is the first country from its very inception to have been surveyed and engineered according to Masonic ritual and specification. So before we get into this, I want to say I'm not personally on team. All the founding fathers were evil Freemasons. Um, I'm not quite on that camp. I think that truth is more complex than we like to paint it. I was just black or white, good or bad. I think that even, for example, in Freemasonry, you don't get to even see what a negatively polarized service to self power structure it is until you're very, very high in the ranks. And probably, you know, between rank one through 20 or something, you're just learning spiritual principles of self-empowerment and mind training and all this stuff. You don't really get into the deception and controlling others and taking, uh, creating mental slaves and stuff until the very, very, very highest levels of Freemasonry. And so people can be in Freemasonry and just think they're a part of a great spiritual group, you know, that's teaching self-empowerment and stuff. And that's how they, they coax people into, you know, Freemasonry to begin with. Nobody, almost nobody would join Freemasonry if they knew what the end goal of it was, which is to become a world dominator, you know, enslave everyone. They wouldn't, nobody would join it if they knew that's what it was from the outset. So it just, it presents itself like a, a helpful spiritual, you know, gentleman's club where we all learn self-empowerment things. And then you gradually get into it. So the, the founding fathers, although they were Freemasons, could have been entry-level, beginner-level Freemasons. And there's certain things you have to do to ascend up the ranks. So I can't, I can't exactly speak to all the United States was set up like a Freemason ritual. I don't know Freemason rituals, but I have watched some pretty interesting videos that show like the layout of Washington, D.C., how it's all perfectly a grid of Freemason sim symbolism. I don't know what you have to say about that, Jeremy, but I think the important point here is that I think when we learn how the world is structured, Jeremy, first we, you know, when somebody starts getting red pilled, so to speak, the first avenue is always, oh, who really runs the world? Oh, look, these five corporations own every corporation on the planet. Who owns those? Oh, these four or five elite banking families. So eventually somebody will realize, oh, the whole world literally is controlled financially through a handful of elite bankers. And you're like, oh, that's kind of a harsh reality to wake up to. But then you keep researching who these families are, where their lineages and bloodlines come from and what their spirituality is. And you find out, oh, not only are they all run by bankers, but all these bankers are avowed, open, 33-degree Freemasons. <laughs> 
And so are all the politicians. And, you know, you kind of wake up to the Freemasonry matrix. Uh, it's another part of the rabbit hole that we eventually have to see, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good way to lay it out. Uh, I'm going to reflect one thing uh, that you s said, but kind of what it brought up for me in a, in a little bit of a different way. And then I'm going to tell a, a story about uh, Freemasons. Nice. So, <laughs> so uh, in some of our uh, last episodes in which we were breaking down all the different systems, we were kind of talking about this notion of how through centralization and complexity, they're able to accomplish everything that is now what we refer to as the matrix, right? And there's all these different systems and then one macro system that we could just call the matrix society as we know it. All of society as we know it today has been painstakingly envisioned and calculated in a very intentional way by groups that tend to be very traditional and ritualistic and calculated in nature. So I think it's a, it's a conversation larger than even just the Freemasons. I think that life, if you zoom out far enough, in, in, from a certain lens, life is really just a competition of ideas. Totally. And it's not always the best ideas that win, obviously. And so I don't view this as like Satan's ruling the world or people that worship Satan are ruling the world necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think that we all feel our ideas are the best. During the last few hundred years, the groups that happened to come up with the best plan and the best implementation and the most elusive and undetectable strategies prevailed and their ideas got passed on. Think of it almost like natural selection mm -hmm. and evolution, like certain families and subspecies they die off they don't reproduce same with ideas ideas are almost like an organism mm -hmm. they're a thing they have energy and some of them die off over time like uh, maybe slavery or women's rights or whatever it may be and then some of them don't they proliferate they spread uh, like a virus and they go everywhere so our country was definitely founded on masonic principles and um, there's definitely sketchy stuff in there as well as um, positive stuff in there, which makes it confusing for the people yeah. that just want to have a black and white conversation. <laughs> um, but ultimately, yeah, I think it's just uh, important to understand that ideas run the world. Groups that are in power come up with their own ideas and then they try to use the power they've amassed and the money they've amassed and the influence they've amassed to make their ideas the next thing. Mm -hmm. And that is always the case. So like now we're seeing, for example, the WEF wants to be the next Rockefeller and Rothschilds, right? Mm -hmm. Klaus Schwab wants to be the new for the next few hundred years creator of it. And he's going with the more vocal, <laughs> obvious approach and agenda. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's not so much of a thing of like us versus them. I think that it's, Everyone in power versus everyone in power. I mean, just look at like Elon 100%. and the mainstream media or whatever. Like you can't tell me like Bill Gates and Elon, they don't like each other. 
you have Elon like trolling on Twitter saying like that they gave me the GBs or whatever and like or like posting like uh, queasy emojis in response to Klaus <laughs> Schwab's speech is like when you have that level of influence, power, money, status, um, I think you're always competing to use that because why else did you amass it to use that to leave your stamp and your footprint, right? Everyone's about legacy, especially at those levels. That's why they do that. They don't need money anymore. They could, they would have stopped a long time ago if it was about money. They feel they know better than everyone else. And that's a, that's a human blind spot where like when we succeed in life, we think we figured it out and we think that we figured it out so much so that we figured it out for everyone and they should listen to us. Yep. And I've witnessed that in myself at micro level. So I can only imagine what it's like when you're a multi-billionaire. And so I get it. And then I think that that just gets propagated and they use those resources to try to control. So, and then the other thing, uh, I'll tell a little story. So, um, as you guys likely know, uh, I run a community called the level up collective and we mainly focus on all things freedom. There's a spiritual component to that, but we also heavily focus on law, uh, investing, commerce, uh, debt discharge, credit repair, uh, funding, et cetera. So, um, we focus on these areas and we actually have a member who I guess wasn't, uh, the best at reading the room and was like proudly, uh, letting letting everyone know that he's a freemason and uh <laughs> interesting and so like it was like probably he was thinking that like in any other group it would have been like oh shit that would have given him status mm -hmm. but in in this group like people were like dot 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 <laughs> like like are you serious like you know people were a little sketched out like <laughs> it was funny to see and uh so like we were asking him questions about it and uh, he was basically explaining like exactly what you were saying. So I just wanted to tell a story to kind of illustrate that. So like, um, I guess there's how many degrees? 33. 33. Okay. So there's 33 degrees. So basically like exactly like you said, so he's like, he's almost to the top of it, but the difference from almost to the top of it to the 33rd is like everything. Yeah. Like he said that it's just like simple, um, like tasks and like positive things like kindness or like giving related service related stuff that like gets you like ranking up mm -hmm. and that, and then like, it just gave me a lot of perspective. Cause like he thought that it was a good thing right? <laughs> like, yeah, and he feels that it's a good thing. Um, and it goes to show like they know nothing at the lower ranks and like, all it was was like it was even like uh they read the bible so it was interesting that like that's how it is but then there's like a completely different thing going on that like your average person is never going to get um invited into mm -hmm. so yeah i don't know that just gave me some interesting perspective of like are there like two completely separate groups of this also another like psyop theory could be that like Maybe the group isn't Freemasonry at all. That's like what they've given people as like the black sheep because people need something to destroy and sacrifice, mm -hmm. right? Well, it could also be the kind of thing like denominations in churches mm. where um, like there's a big difference between like traditional Catholicism as we know it here in the United States and like Vatican Catholicism yeah. where it's 
it's really all just a disguise. It's, it's a kind of, I think, Jesuit cult or something, a Freemason cult posing as a, as a Catholic church with this whole crazy power structure. So it's that doesn't point. mean that all Catholicism is that. It could yeah. be that way with Freemasonry too, where there, maybe there is like a good brand of Freemasonry where you just learn how to do positive things or whatever. And then there's like a corrupted version of Freemasonry that the elites only play by. And unless you're a politician, somebody with power, somebody with status in the world, guess what? You're not going to get invited to that Freemason party anyways. So there might be multiple different classes of Freemasonry going on that we're not aware of. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. So let's go to seven now, which says the causes behind- I have a question behind... for you, actually. Sorry yeah, to go ahead. you. I think it will be worthwhile. because I want... This is more of a selfish question that I want to ask you. What are your personal thoughts on- what do people what do people gain from worshiping darkness and participating in satanic rituals mm. like as a lifestyle mm -hmm. we see how addictive it is you know like we just had the grammys um we saw a very open satanic worship ceremony by sam smith right uh, and then i think lady gaga had a, a younger girl throwing up all over her just that. really weird fucking shit and you figure like, once again, to ground it back to reality, it's really easy to go, oh, I can't imagine. How could they? But it's like, that's you also. <laughs> that's <laughs> also, you in that's an alternate you. universe. So yeah, it's for like, real. don't play yourself. Like, so I'm always grounding myself back to that. And I'm just curious, like, obviously, the there's a strong benefit there or they wouldn't do right, that. Of course. So well, what are your it's, thoughts? It's the negative polarity of consciousness. So it has its own powers and effects, just like the positive polarity has its own. So yeah, it's like whenever we're talking about the positive negative polarities in the world, the forces of light or darkness, as we've called them, there's no judgment involved in it. We're not saying that these are evil people. We don't believe in that stuff. This is just the path of conscious evolution that some beings on this planet have chosen because those beings want power over others. And that's their cup of tea. The vast majority of people on this planet are positively polarized and want to be positively polarized, which means service to others, which means we create a beautiful world that is united and works equally for everyone and doesn't incentivize massive power structures. If that's the world we want, we're on the positive polarity. And so it's just about saying yes to what we want and saying no to what we don't want. But with that being said, we're just trying to gain awareness of what the negative polarity is doing so that it doesn't keep taking advantage of us because that's what they do. That's what they specialize in. And so I've seen, you know, like certain videos about like Lady Gaga, for example, who you brought up uh, going through her own, um, I think it's some kind of Luciferian ritual where she literally hires a, or works for whatever, a Luciferian witch or whatever, who puts people through these initiations. So the there's this video. Name is like Mariana or something. Yes. Like with yeah. an M. That hangs and, out with Jay-Z a lot, I guess. Yep, that's the one. And she does all the blood parties yeah, or yeah, yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's a video of like Lady Gaga doing this ritual where she's like naked in the woods, blindfolded, and has to find her way back to wherever and drink this potion and do all this satanic looking stuff. And they're like, wow, like she's so empowered. She did so strong today. And they're talking about it like she gained power today. So it's like, that's what it is, right? The, the satanic stuff is a, is a means of gaining power for those people. They feel powerful as they 
increase up the ranks. And the higher up you go, Freemasonry on the, the darkest side of it, whatever that is, is essentially just a cover for Satanism because it becomes the same thing at a certain level where they talk, they start talking about Lucifer, the morning star, uh, the bringer of light and wisdom. And the wisdom is that you're the God of this realm and that you should control it and put it under your power. So satanic rituals are means of increasing your power or your negative polarity. So eventually mm-hmm. you're doing things like kill an animal and feel no remorse, um, kill an animal and drink some of its blood and feel like you gain some of its life force energy. That's the kind of stuff they do, right? Which is where right. you always see the blood rituals happening in satanic stuff. Damn. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, the polarity, I wanted to ask you specifically cause, cause of like what you teach on and what you're versed in. I knew you'd have a unique perspective there. Yeah. The law of one material makes so much sense out of the power dynamics in our world. It's really just two polarities kind of battling it out, so to speak in the, on the plane of consciousness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So power, it's a hell of a drug. Yep. Negative polarity is power, power over and uh, positive polarity is love or unity. We could say it that way. Beautiful. So uh, number seven here says the causes behind world war one, world war two and the and the depression were completely fraudulent. The United States was making loans to other countries all over the world during the depression. In the early 1930s, the building of Germany's infrastructure, railroads, military, and funding for the Nazi party was financed by the United States, including various other American corporations and private American investors, namely Prescott Bush, the grandfather of George W. Bush. So interesting fact there about these things we call, again, emergencies, right? Like the Great Depression. If you know anything about banking, fractional reserve lending, the way currency works, you understand that these things are orchestrated events. Like just the simple fact that everybody wants to make money equally. Everyone needs money equally. In a natural flourishing economy that's not being messed with, you would never see something like a depression, why would we all incentively uh, collectively want to devalue our own currency and make trade more difficult and all this stuff that happens? We would never do that, right? Every organism wants to flourish and thrive. So the fact that we keep going through these massive economy crashes means that somebody at the top of the system is pulling levers and making things happen that will force these events to happen where the economy crashes, the banks swallow up all the money as everyone's paying off debt. They, they create these to make money like everything else, just like war, World War I, World War II. As we said earlier, banks act like dogfighters that antagonize countries to go into war with each other. So depending on how the power structure works, I'm not totally sure, but like the governor of a state, the, the, the leader of a country, a third world country or a country like America may not necessarily know that banks are trying to cause a war to make profit they may actually just see things that the other country is doing to them and they're getting incentivized to do things in return. And they actually think they're at war. That could be true. But nevertheless, when we look at the finances, we always see that it's ultimately the banks that cause and prolong and determine who goes to war and when and for how long, because they'll fund both sides. So it's saying World War I and World War II were not actually because the world was in conflict but the banks own all the economies in the world. So they make crisis happen 
by putting countries in certain positions financially where they need things and then conflict ensues and then war ensues. So it's a pretty simple strategy ultimately. Mm. Two things I want to bring up. One is if we want to look at this from like a spiritual lens and tie it into macroeconomics, we could basically just go back to the kind of the law of reciprocity and understand that that relates to everything in the universe. It's governing the Mm -hmm. 3D realm. When you create a, a fiat currency and it's no longer pegged to anything, there's now an issue of reciprocity because there's not real value exchange occurring. Now you have a whole host of issues that come from creating fiat currencies in the first place. There's a reason why they typically only last about 100 years. And this is why I'm always talking about the whole fourth turning thing, because ours was created in 1913 with the creation of the Fed. And it's 2023. So it's been 110 years. And fiat currencies, they don't last that long. But anyway, to kind of explain what I'm saying, if you understand reciprocity and you understand that um, kind of like polarities have to match, there has to be a give and a take, there has to be a value exchange. What's the value exchange when you're receiving debt notes, right? (laughs) Like there's not, there's nothing tied to it. So that's an interesting lens. Um, And I bring that up because you're talking about boom and bust cycles and you're exactly correct in a free market without without government intervention. And if we actually had real barter and value exchange, um, not surrounding debt notes, and there wasn't allowed to be a central bank and money printing and um, fraudulent lending practices, and we wouldn't have this notion of inflation. It wouldn't exist. And so because it's almost like we talked about in our recent episodes as well, we've traded our kind of like our privacy. Well, this is the way I said it before, is that we traded our privacy for convenience. And that's the issue that we're in in 2023 mm-hmm. or in this new world. We, we trade, we sign sign me up for convenience, easier life, faster, quicker, cheaper, whatever. But what are you foregoing in the small print? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that concept. But in relation to this, it's like we traded things that align with the natural universe, like natural law. Yep. We traded those things that are authentic, real, and align with the energetics of truth and we swap them out for like cheap plastic lookalikes mm-hmm. that are like man-made synthetics and now we have issues like boom and bust cycles and constant financial markets that are always tied up on what is the fed gonna do and we're just continually giving away our power because it's like this system that operates off of synthetic energetics is what i'll call it <laughs> synthetic energetics yeah like we that. could just call it synthetics <laughs> yeah well you notice and, that pattern of they always they always ask us to trade our freedom for one of two things safety or convenience yeah that's it that's all you could you would ever trade your freedom for safety or convenience and you shouldn't do either because your freedom is your safety right and your freedom is your convenience but that's why they want to fatten us up, get us hooked on drugs, video games, the metaverse, social media, be zombies. Because then we just want convenience more than anything else. And we're in this overly convenient society where everything's on a button on my phone. And I can just order food, order groceries, never leave my house, watch movies indoors. And yeah, like Jeremy said, there's a lot of downsides to that as well. Yeah. 
And then the second thing I wanted to bring up was while we're talking about the world wars, especially world war two is, are you familiar with uh, operation paperclip? Yes. Yeah. So I just like, I think it's like a nice tie in and I don't want to go too deep into it, but just <clears throat> look, I'll into read it. what I'll read what Wikipedia says so that you guys can understand. And if it piques your interest, look into it. Um, there's, there's some really good books on it as well. But anyway, it says Operation Paperclip was a secret U.S. intelligence program in which more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from the former Nazi Germany to the U.S. for government employment after the end of World War II. Wait, I thought the Nazis were the bad guys, Jeremy. Exactly. So you have to ask yourself, um, number one, it kind of makes you rethink this notion of like enemies that we hate, right? If, if the U.S. is truly at war, why are you employing 1,600 of them after the war? And then also makes you want to ask the question, what are wars really about? And mm. as I always say, like all crimes are commercial. It's like you could say all wars are commercial as well, which we already talked about. Um, so out of that came like, um, what's his name? Milton, I don't know the first, Warner Von Braun. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then that gets into the moon landing shit and all sorts of stuff that um, that I won't get into. It's it's out of my out of my scope. I don't want to pontificate, but some good stuff you guys can look into because um, they did bring over some of the some of the most skilled engineers and scientists and physicists in the world. And let's just put it this way: they found out that Hitler was working on technologies that no one else was either crazy enough or willing to focus on working on because of probably the mind that he had and what he was trying to accomplish. And they immediately found and brought over those scientists and wanted to kind of take that technology. You can imagine world powers are concerned with like, well, we have to know what the enemy is doing and also keep up with their technologies or else we're in a losing position, leverage and power dynamic wise. And so there's a lot you can go into surrounding kind of technologies the US was able to massively step into or, or come into after World War II because they were able to hire those 1600 Nazi scientists and basically get them to bring over their brains and everything they knew and everything that they were working on. And then to use them to experiment on the American citizens through MK Ultra in the 70s. Yep. A lot went down after 1945 when we ended things. And then um, for the next few decades, there was a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff going down. <laughs> yeah, to put it lightly. <laughs> well, I think it's funny how when you, again, when you start researching, like, who really runs the world? How do the systems of the world really operate? And you find out, oh, it's all elite bankers. And then you find out, oh, and they're all Freemasons. And then you find out, oh, and they all <laughs> create war to profit off mass death and genocide. And that's their, their primary profit machine. Oh, that's really dark. And then you keep looking into it even further and you find out, oh, and they're all like part of a global child trafficking ring, a la Jeffrey Epstein. They're all on the island. They're all together in cahoots. And it's like <laughs> the farther you go, it just it appears to get darker and darker. Until so you're like, how could it get any worse? But this only exists because we've allowed it to exist by turning a blind eye, by being ignorant to the truth. Like the light is so powerful that all it needs to do to vanquish the darkness is 
shine. You know what I mean? Darkness has no power over light. Wherever light shines, darkness is gone. And darkness isn't something that can even shine itself, right? So light is infinitely more powerful. We just have to wake up to the truth and start living and embodying the truth. And that's what these conversations are really about. Amen to that. So getting through these last three points now, uh, continuing on with this conversation, number eight, this says that the etymology behind what we today in the West would consider innocuously ordinary, internationally dispersed banking practice called lending is known within virtually every holy text throughout the world, including the Bible, as usury. Usury is generally categorized as a predatory type act or preying on those who are most vulnerable. People within the banking and loan industry, however, more commonly refer to this practice as writing a loan or mortgage. <laughs> the word mortgage comes from the Latin conjunction morte <laughs> gage, which in English literally means death grip. So that's what Jeremy was just talking about with the illusion of ownership is that a mortgage is like a debt slave contract, right? Where they're going to lock you into a super high interest rate, 32 year loan. Like, yo, if you're in debt to somebody for 32 years, you're 32 years a slave is what you're signing up for. And even after you pay it off, you're still their slave. That's the, the rabbit at the end of the hat for them. But ultimately what we're saying here is like, you're signing these contracts yourself by agreeing to these terms that they're giving you. And usury has been this practice that has gone on for thousands of years that is actually can be traced all the way back to the Babylonian empire back during the days of the Silk Road trade and whatnot, the mm -hmm. Babylonians, I believe, were either the first or one of the first nations to create and use the Silk Road, which is this ancient road that traveled all the way from like Europe to China to do trade on. And they developed this system of enslaving other people and countries and whatnot through debt. Because like Jeremy said, it's not feasible to enslave everyone by throwing them in handcuffs or, or making them like the, you know, it, ancient Egyptians made the Israelites build the pyramids and work all day long because eventually the people are going to get so miserable, they're going to revolt and try to overthrow you or escape. So world leaders have realized throughout history that this isn't a, a good strategy long term for having slaves. A much better strategy is a slave who doesn't really know they're a slave, right? Yeah. But for all intents and purposes are no different than if they were shackled. Yeah, that's kind of what we talked about earlier. Uh, they've gotten more and more intelligent with it. Cause you always have to manage that. So you're not, you're not overthrown. So I see why you brought up usury earlier. This yeah. is a, this is one of the more powerful ones for sure. I think that the mortgage meaning death grip is quite hilarious. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of when you look into the etymology of uh, government, it means to rule the mind. Oh, that's so amazing. Have you seen that one? <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. And it's like, it's actually like, so govern is like to rule and then it's like mint means like the mind yeah mental soul mental. yeah 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 like it's pretty pretty deep there the illusion of authority yeah robert kiyosaki he has some some good teachings i don't know if you've ever dove into him but uh that's the rich dad poor dad guy oh yes and i've read that book yeah so he has a lot of deeper teachings that's kind of like his introductory book but um i'm a pretty big fan of his in terms of like uh the basics of uh, financial literacy and how the systems work, but not at the level we're going. Like he's definitely not talking about uh, common law or anything law yeah, related, yeah. but, but definitely like opening your eyes to like 
uh, bankers and like how the wealthy work. And um, he tells a lot of the way he writes in his books is like uh, he tells stories. Right. So um, that's why like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, instead of informational, he made it a story. So it teaches you through a story. And he tells he tells um, a story about how his uh, his rich dad one day sits him down. And this part has always stuck with me. It's it's like one of the most simple and um, illuminating and clarifying ways to understand wealth that I've ever heard. So he basically explains that his dad sits him down, uh, his rich dad, who's it's not his real dad, but and he and he tells him um, basically wealth is a game of who is in debt to who. Mm. And he said, if you want to be wealthy, then you need to have more people in debt to you than you are in debt to people. And he basically gives different examples of like, look at how bankers operate. How are the, why, why do bankers around the world? How are they so powerful? Because they have the most people in debt to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very helpful thing to understand. Super simple. Because it's very simple, but profound. If you start running through examples of thinking of different powerful people in powerful places, I mean, okay, Elon, how is he so rich? Well, how many people are in debt to him? How many people have auto loans on Teslas? Just, I don't know about you, but you drive around San Diego. (laughs) It's every other car at this point. Sure, it's like that in Austin too. Yep. So that that is a helpful um, anecdote to understand. And then the other the other piece of that is like society, as we were talking about, glamorizes this notion of ownership, right? But what comes with ownership? Slavery, <laughs> loans. Usually, the types of things that society glamorizes owning are the types of things you have to pay. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 year loans on to afford. So who's in debt to who? And in the example of like a house, it's it's an extra funny one because it's like, you're not just in debt to the bank on your 30 year note. You're in debt to the uh, state franchise board and you're in debt to like, in other words, your property taxes yearly mm-hmm. and any other, um, types of modifications or additions or remodeling you might do on your home and all this type of stuff. So they're getting you in multiple ways in regards to um, how many people you're in debt to, to buy that. And Mm -hmm. people don't, this is like financial literacy 101. It's like, how many people are in debt to you? Like, do you have cash flow coming in from other people purchasing something that you offer of value? Whereas most people are only concerned with the items that are literally causing them to be in debt. That's what people are proud about. They're not proud of the things that residual income coming in, which means other people are in debt and have loans on something you've provided the marketplace. They just want to talk about the items that they're in debt over. And that's kind of the power dynamic 101 is like when you let when you go in debt to someone you've given them power over you so yeah choose wisely it's it's interesting to see how they've actually set up a society that glamorizes slavery in that sense exactly that's literally what it is and then that ties into like how culture and media work 
like we we got into the prison system and like some of the racial stuff in the last episode, right? We did. And yeah. It's like look at what what is rap and hip hop glamorous? Yeah. <laughs> like think about the lifestyle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Wasting your money, like literally, you might as well just light it on fire. <laughs> who is the number one group of people that are listening to that? And then what are they emulating? And then the cycles repeat. So it's like, we glamorize the wrong shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's starting to change now. Thank you. It is starting to change. Yeah. It's been cool. Uh, social media. And then also in the last five ish years, we've watched like, it's now popular to be an entrepreneur. Whereas before, like a decade ago, 15 years ago, you would be like embarrassed to tell someone you were an entrepreneur. Like it was seriously frowned upon. True. Like, like, oh, you're going to fail. Like, what are you doing? You like, don't work for the don't system. You, How embarrassing. You get a job. Yeah. And now it's like, you're an entrepreneur. Like, oh, that's so cool. What do you do? Like, like, it's completely different. We're in a different world. So yeah, it is definitely shifting. It's in us. So it's worth talking about. Yeah. There's work to be done there. 100%. Moving on to number nine, now we're going to get into more of the Federal Reserve stuff that we've been touching on. It says the Federal Reserve was never legally ratified on the floor of the House and Senate and is not a U.S. government agency. Can't stress that enough. <laughs> it is a privately owned, for-profit pyramid scheme perpetuated against Americans by a most unethical group of world bankers, i.e. J.P. Morgan, Paul Wall Warburg. J.D. Rockefeller, et cetera. So this one's obviously true. This is not hard to uh, verify for yourself. Again, all the references are here, but uh, the Federal Reserve, as we've said many times, is like as if McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts decided to become a money printing business. And then the United States government was like, hey, let's hire Dunkin' Donuts to print all the money that our country uses. We would be like, uh, no, are you out of your mind? You're not gonna let a private company print our money. But that is what has happened because it was a cleverly named institution. And so now we tolerate a private for-profit company that really belongs to the IMF, which we're going to get into. And that's a, a United Nations bank. It's not American. It's not any affiliate at all with the United States. And so this is why you see a lot of the end the Fed, end the Fed talk, because it really is the root of all the problems our country suffers from is that we have a private banking system that runs our country that is not um, incentivized to do good to the American people and is not being uh, monitored by any kind of government or agency at all. There's no oversight over these people who can just literally do whatever they want unimpeded. Big problem. Yeah. So next part of this says the Internal Revenue Service isn't a U.S. government agency either, but an agency of the International Monetary Fund, a.k.a. the IMF. The IRS was devised by bankers to collect national debt, which they, the bankers, created themselves by greatly inflating the cost of financing, which Jeremy touched on, both world wars. Uh, these same bankers instigated these wars in the first place. And so the IRS then began collecting the income tax directly imposed on the American people as a means to ensure perpetuation of an archaic class system known as serfdom or slavery. Now, this is what we talked about a minute ago, too, that um, in, the, in the World War I, I believe, taxes began as the government pitched it as like, hey, you know, our country's at war. If you want to be a good patriot, 
and support your country, you can donate some of your money voluntarily to the war, war efforts. And so a lot of Americans donated war taxes uh, of their own will, free will, to the war. And then every year, the United States government just kept sending those papers in the mail saying, hey, you can donate, you can volunteer to help the country with taxes. And then eventually it didn't tell you that it was voluntary anymore and you just got it in the mail. So over a period of a generation or two, they sort of crept it in through war and now became it turned into a mandatory thing that you literally will get tossed in jail if you don't pay these taxes. But the key is they're still voluntary, right? We just aren't aware of that, most of us. Yeah. This one's a heater. <clears throat> yeah. So there's a good amount of case law for you guys here as well. So I would I would check into this one. Obviously, that's pretty loaded. People are always like, they really have a hard time believing that the IRS is pretty much owned by the IMF. Mm -hmm. And the IMF is owned by Europe and the United Nations and these families that we're talking about. Well, look because it up. <laughs> if that connection is able to be drawn, then there's a clear understanding of where your tax money goes. I think it's really helpful to kind of research the, the period of time in which the income tax was created and kind of look into how it was initially rolled out. And it was never supposed to stick. It was, it was, it was proposed as a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. And what does that remind you of Aaron? <laughs> Emergency acts, wartime. Well, what was proposed as a temporary thing in the last few years? Oh, <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> right? Stay inside for a month. Yeah, that it's, it's two weeks to flatten the curve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do your part. So, uh, and then we have the conversation around brings up the Constitution and not being a legal, a legal tax. So that kind of ties into like, are we a constitutional nation? How are they able to go against the constitution? And it's like, well, because they turn the people into not people. Yeah. So all of a sudden that's, that's kind of their gray area is like, if we can turn the people into persons, we can violate the very declarations, documents and contracts that, that created. Them. Yes. That created yep. all of this. So Technically it's, like this it's not weird, a violation, right? Yeah, and, the, and then they can also still say, I pledge an oath <laughs> to the Constitution because yeah. it's like, well, you're not a people. So it's, it's interesting how that all works out. Yeah, this is another great strategy to be aware of, of the negative polarity. This is the way that the negative polarity, one of the, the chief ways that it will try to take power over someone or you is that they'll introduce, they'll try to get you to give away some of your free will and power by any means necessary. So they'll do like a, a very temporary, can I just ask this one permission from you to just give up some of your rights for the greater good, for the good of all. I mean, you, you care about all, right? So they appeal to your virtue. They appeal to your empathy and say, it's to do the right thing that you should give up your rights to not be forced masked or vaccinated or whatever. And if they can get you to accept that, then they, they have you forever because they're never going to, like I've heard the analogy that they take one step towards you and they keep taking a step towards you until you say, hey, stop it. You're getting too close to me. And they just say, oh, no problem. And they just stay there. And then after a few more hours, they take one more step. So like they're never backing up is the point. <laughs> they're just always inching closer to you, taking more of your freedom. So once you give them some of your freedom, you ain't never getting it back unless you become truly empowered and just take it back yourself. They're never, mm -hmm. never going to give it back to you of their mm -hmm. own free will once they have it. Mm -hmm. Privileges. 
Right. That's what a privilege is. Getting to number 10 here, finishing up on the IRS thread. It says the 1040 tax form is quite literally a form of tribute paid to Britain. And that's an IRS publication 6209, which I looked up. The IMF is an agency of the United Nations. We know that. The United States has not had a real treasury since 1921. And the United States treasury is now the IMF. And it's got all the references there. Uh, this is a good document. <laughs> would love to hear from, from the audience how much of this you guys are aware of. Do you disagree with certain things? Why? Curious how many people are um, in agreement or have researched. This, this is pretty all-encompassing. Yeah. I've found that when you get to the tax subject, it's especially a sore, sore subject for a lot of people who've, especially older people who've been paying taxes their whole life. It's one of those facts that you, truths that you really don't want to accept because it hurts so much that taxation yeah. is fraud and that it's not mandatory. It is voluntary and you've been duped into it. It's the whole, it's easier to fool a man than to convince a man that he has been fooled. Because that really plays into the ego of man that you have been fooled, right? So it's, it's not, you know, to wake up to these truths should be only an empowering feeling. It should never be a humiliating, degrading, embarrassing, whatever kind of feeling. Because again, look, you didn't have a choice not to believe this stuff, not to participate in these systems. Like it doesn't even matter how intelligent of a person you are. Social conditioning is everything as we're born and raised into a world where we don't know anything when we come into this world and we're taught by people we give authority to parents, teachers, pastors, how the world works. And so being innocent little children, we are, we just believe what we're taught and we're, we're a cog in the system for a while. The fact that you're waking up to this information now is a testament to how intelligent and self-aware you are, that you're even interested in this kind of stuff, that you're seeing it and you're willing to actually make these changes in your life and in your awareness, that's what speaks to who you really are. So when you, when you wake up to this stuff, again, it should only make you feel more empowered. Agreed. So we're going to wrap it up there for the first part of this two-part episode on the 20 facts of the United States. Um, we're going to do episode two next week. We'll get through facts 11 through 20 and oh, cool. uh, going to get a lot deeper into some of the um, policy enforcing social security stuff we've touched on. So anything else you want to add before we close out? So make sure to tune in next week on uh, my channel. This week's is broadcasting on Aaron's channel. Like we said, we're doing uh, the flip flop every other week. So we will see you guys in uh, our next episode. We hope you found today valuable. Let us know in the comments what your uh, biggest takeaways were, or if you have any questions, concerns, or um, you want to let us know how wrong we are there. That's always welcome as well. And we'll see you in the next episode. Peace and love. Thanks for watching. Peace and love.